I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Thank God for David Attenborough with Ben Elwood. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Thank God for David Attenborough. My name is Ben Elwood, and my guest today is the brilliant Professor Richard Shine from Macquarie University. Rick is a world-renowned evolutionary biologist and ecologist. He's the recipient of countless honours and awards, including the 2016 Prime Minister's Prize for Science, for his pioneering and innovative work on tackling Australia's cane toad epidemic. He's even had a species of snake named after him. Look it up. It's called Shine's Whip Snake. It was a great honour to chat with Rick about lizard brains, Charles Darwin, crocodiles and of course serpents as we sat down together to watch episode 7 of Sir David Attenborough's Life on Earth, Victors of the Dry Land. It's sometimes thought that reptiles in general are dull, stupid creatures with only the glimmerings of intelligence and the simplest of behaviour patterns. That's a very mistaken view. What got you into reptiles? Oh, if I was one of these horrible little children that was uh, obsessed with scaly creatures from an early age, you know, I used to bring blue-tongued lizards to school when I was in primary school, and, I mean, it's just always been there. You know, some people are into model trains, some people are are into politics. Yeah, look, for me, the sight of a red-bellied black snake basking in the sunshine is just one of the glorious things in life, and so it's it's partly aesthetic. Partly intellectual, they're mysterious creatures. I've just been very fortunate to spend my life doing the things that probably are are most interesting to me. I'm Rick Shine. I'm a professor in biology at Macquarie University. I've had a long career prying into the lives of a whole range of reptiles and amphibians. And snakes have been my great love ever since I was a kid. Yeah, look, famously, the world of science is full of Attenborough groupies. You know, people adore him. Mm. I don't watch very many wildlife documentaries. What, because um, you're in the field? Well, mostly they're awful, particularly the macho stuff where they're just harassing an animal so that it will defend itself mm-hmm. and you can talk about how dangerous it is. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, David's, they're not only sort of visually exciting and, mm. and, and they're factual mm. as opposed to some of the nonsense that you do see, but he is very, very careful about how he explains things. He does it beautifully, simply, 
not a wasted word in yeah. most cases, and the body language is great and so on as well, but there has been enormous care into paring down the script to make yes. it intelligible. Yeah. He had such a fantastic team of people out there contacting biologists saying what, what's new and wonderful that could make striking footage, mm. and they got all kinds of stuff that wasn't even in the scientific literature yet, yeah. so that... I remember I'd just done a big review on parental care in amphibians and I was, you know, one of the big experts. And there was some footage in the amphibian show of Sicilians taking care of their babies that nobody knew about. Yeah. And, and it was all true and it all got published a year or two later. So it was remarkably mm. up to date and very carefully fact-checked. Yeah. Yeah, no, bless his heart. He's the best, right? Yeah. <laughs> in many parts of the world, snakes flourish in huge numbers. They're so unobtrusive that it's difficult to appreciate just how many there are, except on special occasions. One such occurs every spring in southern Canada. Prairie garter snakes hibernate commonly. And when spring comes, a flood of newly warm snakes spills from the limestone pits where they've wintered. As soon as they emerge, they mate. Garter snake dens in Manitoba, just incredible. We did for seven or eight years in a row, just trying to work out the mechanics of the mating system. You get 20,000 snakes in an area the size of your living room. No. Um, <laughs> and 99% uh, of them are lovesick males that are all frantically trying to court the females as they come back out of the ground. It's, it's a snake ecologist, oh, heaven. Being in a small room with 20,000 horny anything would be confronting. <laughs> They're amazing. And did you work out the mechanics of it? Yeah. There's always more to find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's the female looking for? Like she's got spoiled for choice. She doesn't have much control at this stage because she could have a hundred boys on her uh -huh. and uh, they stress her to the point that she actually gapes her cloaca open, which gives one of them a chance to, to wow. mate. She can control which sperm she uses to fertilise her babies. So uh -huh. even if she mated with guys that were not her choice, as long as she mated with at least one guy whose sperm she wanted to use, she can go ahead and do that. So, you know, the snakes will tend not to use sperm from closely related males to fertilise the eggs because you get inbreeding problems. So they will selectively use sperm from distantly related males. And so is that big clutch that they're all in writhing all over each other, is that just her kind of going, all right, the hundred most persistent ones probably are the ones whose genes good to pass on and then I'll sort it all out later? Yes. Um, it, it, the really obvious stuff you see is the, the courting and the, the fighting of the males and all this sort of stuff. But in fact, a lot of the important stuff that determines evolutionary fitness is happening inside the female's body when she decides right. which sperm to use. There was a lovely study with rattlesnakes recently where they had captive litters. The kids were raised separately. They put them back in a joint enclosure when they were like a year old and the girls all went and curled up with their sisters. Oh, really? Yeah. So they could clearly tell who was who and they recognised that they were siblings. You wouldn't guess that looking at a rattlesnake's eyes, but they, uh, they obviously have some sophisticated sense of individual recognition. That does seem to be the biggest misconception in general about snakes, right? Just the, the, the there's a cruelty or a malice to them. Yeah. No, people often believe that snakes attack them. And it's really hard to see why a snake would want to do that. Mm. A snake can't eat you. Yeah. There's nothing in it for the snake. Any gene that said leave that dangerous creature alone would yeah. increase in frequency. Yeah. And, you know, after 50 years of working with snakes, I've, I've yet to be attacked. Not once? No. Really? No. I've had them come towards me. Yeah. 
but as long as you step out of the way, they uh, will almost always just go the other direction. There's a lot of um, displays, you know, like a brown snake will, will form itself into this striking coil and it looks for all the world like it's going to attack you and that's mm. how people interpret it. But it's basically telling you, go away, go away, I, I, I just want to be left alone. It just seems to be a story that's passed down over thousands of years. I mean, every it seems that every culture has snake in their myth as some kind of nefarious character. Did the Bible do for snakes what Jaws did for sharks? The Bible's part of the story, but there's a, there's a lot of interesting research suggesting that snakes and people have had a really important relationship. And indeed, there's some really interesting stuff on brain function showing that people are incredibly good at detecting a very subtle visual cue of a snake. So you show them a complex picture with a tiny little coil of a snake right. part hidden and bang, they can, they can see that right. incredibly quickly, uh, much more quickly than almost any other kind of a shape. And there's actually special pathways in the brain that lead to direct action without even a conscious recognition that we've seen a, a snake. We react instantly, we stop, we move away. And so there's a theory called the snake detection theory, which is that a huge proportion of the, of the unique things about the human brain, for example, our ability to read and write and so on, is about this incredible visual acuity, mm. which has been given to us by the fact that snakes were such a problem for us really? in the history of, of our evolution. Wow. Probably originally the big constricting snakes, and then, of course, venom evolved, and, sure. and that became probably even more of a difficulty. So is it, is it almost part of our kind of um, genetic heritage to be a little bit afraid of snakes. That, that's the suggestion. Yeah. There are certainly plenty of animals that have hardwired responses to snakes and they will avoid particular colour oh. patterns that are characteristic of venomous snakes and they'll do that even if they were, you know, it's a bird that was sort of hatched from an egg that was laid in the zoo and has never seen a snake in its life. So that, that right. there is definitely, you know, that there are genetic bases to some of this stuff. Mm. But of course, being humans, we overlay everything with experience. We're so malleable. Yeah. A lot of it is the fact that, you know, when we first saw a snake, you know, Aunt Dorothy grabbed us and said, don't go near that, it's horrible. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, look, it, it, it's it's a mix. Yeah. I mean, the other side of the coin is that there's a minority of people who find these animals fascinating. So I was one of those kids and I not infrequently have been <laughs> contacted by parents with little Sally or little Johnny who's <laughs> got the same disease. And I, I, I assure the parents that it's almost certainly terminal. You know, the, the kid isn't going to recover. But the good news is that throughout their lives, it's going to give them joy. If there's one place in the world where reptiles still rule, it's here in the Galapagos Islands. It is an amazing place, the Galapagos. You've been there? Yeah, it's one of my dreams had always been to snorkel with a marine iguana foraging for, for seaweed, and I did. <laughs> and great. it was just as good as I yeah. always hoped it would be. <laughs> the, the remarkable thing is this island effect where animals are tame so that, you know, the sea lions, the seabirds, the reptiles, they just ignore you and you can be right beside them. And mm. that's pretty wonderful yeah. if you grow up in a world where most living things realise that humans are a, a disaster. Yeah. You're a big Charles Darwin. Oh, yeah, absolutely, you know? yes. Charles is my hero. Did you go there on like a kind of pilgrimage of his? For, of oh, like I think there's a, there was an element of, of pilgrimage in it, but it was just on a sailboat for a couple of weeks with my wife and a few other people. Yeah, and, lovely. Yeah. Do you think the, the, the theory of natural selection and it was kind of one of those things that was just out there and had Darwin not put it down on paper, eventually someone would have... Yeah, there was there were some very similar sorts of suggestions that hadn't been thought through. 
mm. as clearly as Charles managed to do. But he not only came up with the mechanism, he also marshaled the evidence and so forth and identified the logical structure of the argument and so mm. forth. I mean, the guy was, was just amazing. Mm. He, he made contributions to an enormous range of fields mm. and his insights were incredible. But yeah, look, it was an idea that was going to come. I think uh, his famous uh, defender, Huxley, after being had the idea explained to him, said, how incredibly stupid not to have thought of it oneself. <laughs> it's like that in stand-up comedy. <laughs> someone, will start, <laughs> someone will do a bit and all the other comics up the back going, damn it, it's so obvious. <laughs> he, was, he was a very religious man, though, right? No, his wife, Emma, right. was exceedingly religious. Charles had sort of started out. He was going to become a clergyman, but oh. that was really just an excuse so that he could live in the country and, and collect butterflies and so on. Mm. And he says in his autobiography he'd pretty much lost his faith early on, but he didn't want to make a fuss about it. Yeah. Because Emma uh, was such a big part of her life. Sure. And uh, it, a lot of his ill health, I think, came from the fear of what the religious establishment would say when he came up with arguments suggesting that humans weren't quite so special after all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I don't think Charles himself could have been described as theistic. But for some reason I had the impression that he was religious and then realising all this stuff would have been quite a you know T-bone into that cosmology. It certainly would have been. <laughs> Because, I mean, he was a delicate soul, you know. I mean, he, somebody would come and talk science with him for a, a couple of hours and he'd spend the next day lying in bed in pain with abdominal bloating and incredible flatulence and, you know, the poor guy's system just couldn't handle any excitement. So <laughs> um, he probably would never have published The Origin. He'd left the manuscript with his wife with some money saying, please publish this after I die. But then Alfred Russell Wallace came up with the same idea, sent the idea to Darwin and poor old Charles realised that he wouldn't get the credit get for kept, all of his yeah. work, and so he went ahead and published at right. that stage. Okay. But, yeah, he was certainly uh, highly conflicted. Of course, yeah. I guess we're all prisoners to the expectation of the time as well, and it takes a lot of courage to go out on a limb and say something so controversial. Absolutely, and I'm sure a lot of people felt that this was playing into the hands of Satan and mm-hmm. all, all kinds of stuff. All kinds of difficult issues arose about the different races of people, mm. gender, mm. roles, all the, you know, if you've got a different explanation about who human beings are, suddenly a whole bunch of things are brought into question that are pillars of the establishment. Mm. And so, yeah, Charles really kicked the anthill. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, never having been raised, we were raised staunch agnostics, which seems to be probably the more rational. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm a monkey. <laughs> um, but not having that wiring in my head of that default of believing in Christianity or any major religion, when I got to the point of, re- you know, learning that we were all, you know, have a common ancestor and it goes all the way back, it made me feel completely holistically part of something so much bigger and greater than my individual self. It was a feeling of connection with Everything. Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, one of the saddest things I get particularly from students when they're learning about evolution is that if we're just sort of modified chimpanzees, doesn't that remove the meaning of life and isn't it depressing and, and, you know, don't you just want to go out and, 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 and terminate yourself? The reality is that the biologists I know are the happiest people. Yeah. It's exciting as hell. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing awful or depressing about the reality of how we came to be and, and yeah. who we are and... It just enables us to ask much more sensible questions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I think particularly for medical science and so on, if you, if you know the process that sculpted our bodies and our brains, mm-hmm. we're much more, more likely to find ways to fix things that go wrong. Yeah. I also think a lot of – I feel like a lot of human behaviours are put into context when you think of us as an offshoot of – rather than separate, you know. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, <laughs> you walk down King Street on a Saturday night and you're seeing a lot of primate <laughs> behaviour. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Crocodiles have been lazing around swamps unchanged since the beginning of the age of the dinosaurs. At seven meters long and weighing three quarters of a ton, a bull Nile crocodile is the biggest reptile alive today. I thoroughly recommend to anybody to try to get to Komodo Island. Yeah. This is a world where the reptiles are king and that lizard looks at you and it very clearly understands that if it wanted to, it could have you for lunch. Yeah. It chooses not to yeah. and they're not particularly dangerous or anything like that, but it is really quite special to be sharing a world with things like Komodos or mm. with saltwater crocodiles up in the Territory. You know, I work a lot up there. Yeah. And salties are just a constant fact of life. And you're well aware of the fact that a mere human is pretty low down in the uh, food web. Have you ever had an encounter? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You can't spend too much time working in the field um, up around Kakadu without running into, yeah, into right. salties. Yeah. And what did one just jump out at you? I mean, back in the 80s, when I first started working there, they were very scared of people. And, really? You know, they'd been, they'd been shot for a long time, and, and they were obviously there, but you never used to see them. And so we used to swim around and, you know, snorkel through the billabongs, catching our file snakes and things like that, and everybody told us there were no crocs there. Now, you know, 10 years later, these, these giant crocs that had obviously been there the entire time started feeling confident enough that they showed themselves. Yeah. But, yeah, no, there haven't been too many occasions where I've thought that a croc was actually thinking of me as a meal. Mostly they get enough food, they do their thing. You just have to be moderately sensible about how you deal with them. Yeah. They're very sophisticated. They have parental care like birds and they're very they're very smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they look a lot like a lizard. Crocodiles are very close to birds and not particularly close to lizards or snakes. Really? Oh, yeah, no, crocodiles are just slightly modified birds. The ancestors of crocodiles appear to have been warm-blooded, but they went back to the water really? and it was better to be cold-blooded. So, yeah. yeah, when you say that they're more similar to birds than lizards, you mean that along the evolutionary branch that birds yeah. came from, they've yeah. got a closer link to crocodiles than they do to... Yeah, so the main groups of dinosaurs were the archosaurs and uh -huh. their descendants are the crocodiles and the birds. Right. So that lineage took off from the, the mammals and the reptiles a long time ago. Wow. There seems to be more research in showing that they're actually a lot more um, communal and friendly, maybe friendly amongst each other. There was I was watching one the other week where uh, they were one this giant river Nile crocodile had caught a huge whatever wildebeest or something, and the feeding frenzy started. And there seemed to be kind of a an equal share of the catch, which you wouldn't kind of assume is something that crocodiles would engage in communal eating or or sharing. Yeah, as, as we were saying, crocodiles are just. Rather strange-looking birds, and anything a bird can do, a crocodile can do. That's yeah. the closest relative. So that brain is probably capable of driving any complex, sophisticated behaviour that you'd expect your average red-tailed eagle mm -hmm. to do. For example, crocodiles universally the, the take care of the, the nest. You know, the mum hangs around, guards it. She helps the babies to hatch. The babies call from within the egg and mum will come and dig up the nest and she'll carry the babies down to the water yep. and the babies will hang around with her for a while while, yep. while she protects them as they grow up and things like that. That's very unreptilian. You know, there, there are lizards that have family life like that, but the crocs do it universally and that that's really the, exactly the sort of thing we'd expect to see in birds. Yeah, right. And, and, and that, that, that's just an evolutionary development that comes up because it's beneficial to stick around and the altruism of yeah. protecting the young. Yeah, right? but, but but clearly it requires that sort of intellectual equipment to be able to recognise your kids and, yeah. and do some pretty sophisticated things. Right. And, you know, we, we continue to find more and more surprisingly sophisticated stuff. There's a heck of a lot more social interaction going on, a lot more complex sociality 
There's a lot of evidence now that young turtles also are calling from within the nest and that the parents may actually take the kids off on their early migrations and, and they talk to each other underwater. There's all sorts of vocalisations that we only discovered a decade ago. The shingleback lizard that, you know, we know from Mike Bull's work near Adelaide that these things are monogamous and so the same male and female will get together every spring for 20-odd years Mm. and if they can't find their boyfriend or girlfriend then they will uh, forsake all others and they will keep looking until you put the boyfriend or girlfriend back from the cage into the wild and then it's a wonderful reunion and off they go. Mm. So, you know, I would never have expected that level of sophisticated sociality Mm. in in a great big skink. But it's there. There's still the capacity for this much revelation now, though, right? Oh, yeah. No, we're constantly encountering new things, and we're in kindergarten. Yeah. As far as understanding these animals, I, I'm supposed to be one of the great big experts, and I, I get it wrong about 99% <laughs> of the time, you know. The animals are constantly telling us they're capable of doing things that we had no idea they were doing. Do, do you think humans will ever get to a point where we can empathise with the inner life of animals a lot more that we can evolve them? maybe a more holistic relationship with them and we don't uh, just lay waste to everything? It's not clear to me that we're moving towards a more rational, evidence-based decision-making process in, in human culture. Yeah. One of the most depressing perspectives is the idea that professional science was a, not kind of a, an evolutionary leap forward, but it was just a blip in society that science uh, had held a position of authority mm. for some decades, which mm. has now been eroded by a lot of populist beliefs, and uh, it's not clear that we're seeing any progression towards people preferring evidence-based explanation. If anything, I would think maybe we're we're going the other direction. How do you square yourself with that? I mean, I only have the most basic understanding of science, and it drives me crazy. I can't imagine what it's like understanding the depth and complexity of everything and watching the wider population turn their back on it. Oh, yeah, look, it's a frustrating business, Mm. obviously. We all have opinions. We all think that they are supported by kinds of evidence that appeal to us. Now, in some cases, that might be what scientists would call hard facts. For other people, it might be an intuitive, spiritual Mm. thing that Mm. that something deep within their heart tells them that this is true. Mm. And I can respect that. Mm. Uh, That's just a different way of making a decision about what's right. And I think the critical thing is we have to keep talking to each other and communicate with each other about how we're making those decisions. And we can agree to differ. Yeah. But it would be really nice if we understood the other person's perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been really horrible over the last few years watching the state of discourse fall to pieces. It's like two people who agree on 99% of things reject each other over a difference of 1%. Yeah. I, I, has, it, I mean, has it always been like this? I don't, I don't think so. It's, it seems fairly recent that there's this real lack of compassion to even try to understand how a person could get to a place where they're saying something you completely disagree with. Yeah, I mean, I think social media has played a a big role here. It used to be that if you thought that the Prime Minister was really a death adder in disguise, that that you you explained that to all the people you knew and they all said, no, look, you're wrong. That's a silly idea. But now you can get on the internet. There'll probably be a website with a whole bunch of people that believe that every Prime Minister is a death adder in disguise. And so you only talk to those people and they reinforce your views. And I think extremist views have they found kindred spirits and that has reinforced that division. So we, we now have a very fractured society because we can get access to a small number of people scattered around the planet who believe the same rather extremist things that we do. Yeah, absolutely. I also think a lot of the division comes from this complete breakdown in the way we communicate. You know, we've taken this very elaborate system of gestures and tonalities and over the course of about 10 years replaced it predominantly with text. Mm. I don't think it's a coincidence that 
a lot of stuff is being misinterpreted because, you know, if you, if you have just words free of their context, it's really hard not to interpret them in the worst possible way. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's very elusive, but I absolutely agree that a lot of our communication is nonverbal stuff. Mm. It's been tragic to watch the university system go across to online learning because it loses yeah. so much of that rather complex chemistry of those interactions. Mm-hmm. And we don't really quite understand what it is we're losing, but we know that it is just not quite so effective. Yeah. So, yeah, that's an interesting perspective that mm. we're now using words naked of the context mm. and that, that is changing the way that we interpret them. When people default into these modes of thinking, it's popular for people to say, oh, that's their, that's their lizard brain kicking off. Is there any truth to that, that there's the, the hierarchy of how the human brain's constructed where there is a more reptilian base to it? My son is actually... Uh, researcher in neuroanatomy, and he and I have had long discussions about this, there is an element of truth in that the cerebral cortex emerged quite late. And and so a lot of the internal structures of our brain are similar morphologically and probably functionally to what what lizards do. Mm. But whether the cerebellum and all this sort of things, I I mean, I think it's all cerebral cortex stuff, but we're just so malleable. You know, what does the Catholics say? Give me the child and I'll give you the man. 100%. Yeah. If you expose somebody to the right set of conditions with Mm. the right people who are reliable Mm. and whose ideas, you know, I mean, let's face it, almost any religion has has some pretty extraordinary stories and yet people go, you know, that they die to defend a story which on the face of it seems relatively implausible, you know, even before you get to QAnon and the blood-drinking lizards that (laughs) make raid as the Queen of England, yeah. (laughs) Um, So, look, I think, yeah. We all, we all like, you know, a lot of my evolutionary hypotheses are probably equally tenuous, so, you know, I'm not going to cast stones. Yeah, it is a really hard thing to square yourself with. My my grandparents went through all the horrors of the Holocaust, Mm. and I remember until I was about 12 or 13, you know, it was very easy to be in that headspace of, oh, evil man did bad things, but to get to middle teen years and realise, no, it's actually much more terrifying than that, it's, you know... A very charismatic public speaker convinced a whole lot of people that yeah. doing these horrific, hellish things was completely legitimate and plausible. Yeah. That's the hard yeah, thing. Yeah, it's extraordinary how really nice, well-meaning people can end up advocating some pretty awful stuff. And I mean, I, I worked quite a bit in um, places like Sumatra, mm. uh, which is broadly it's, it's highly multicultural. A lot of Islam, a lot of other religions, yeah. and everything's fine, and people get on fine, and then a populist politician will come up and beat the drum, mm-hmm. and people are killing their neighbours mm. in the street mm. and feeling bad about it afterwards, but it's so easy to rouse us <laughs> to, you know, pretty awful passion. I mean, you know. Yeah. But uh, living in the inner west, you know, we've supported the Balmain Tigers for years, and, they, of course, they lose almost everything. And so you, you begin to recognise that you can, you can pursue <laughs> a, a dream despite complete yeah, this avalanche of information that tells yeah. you this is a crap team. <laughs> I follow the Wallabies. You know, my God, you know, we're about to have another Bledisloe series and the Kiwis will kill us. But <laughs> nonetheless, I'll be there hoping somewhere deep in my heart that this will be a miracle. So hoping for miracles is not restricted of to the, course, the yeah, uneducated. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good. What's the main sensory input for a lizard? Oh, it's a whole mix of things. The dragons have got terrific eyesight. Yeah. A lot of other kinds of lizards and snakes scent is probably more important chemical cues on the ground. I think, you know, one of the things that's come out in research since the days of this documentary is, is the sophistication of reptiles that often they're very good at doing things that pay off for them. Like, like what? Uh, you know, like work we've done with garter snakes where we show that with, with one or two flicks of his tongue, a male snake can tell you what species that other snake is, what sex it is, wow. how long it is, how fat it is, whether or not it's likely to reproduce this year, how many eggs it's likely to have, whether or not it's already mated. Wow. And it works this out with a, just a couple of flicks of the tongue. It's a remarkably sophisticated system for mm. a creature that's got a, a brain that's half the size of a pea. <laughs> yeah, of course. I think I, I think because, what, you know, it's obviously we cannot look at reality in a non-human-centric way, so it's just easy to kind of dismiss as... You know, maybe they're not having experience at all. Yes, I think. Look, there's a there's a very genuine challenge. I mean, the big the big problem, more than anything, is that we're warm blooded. We have a system where we eat vast amounts of food. Ninety percent of the energy in that food we use just to keep ourselves warm. Mm. And so we have to keep eating constantly. You know, yeah. a week without food and we're we're in trouble. A month without food and we're dead. Yeah. But a lot of snakes, because they're not trying to keep themselves warm with metabolic heating, it costs them almost nothing just to sit under a rock and routinely go for months and months without a meal. So they're living in a world where most of the time, you know, they're just ticking along, waiting for that window of opportunity that mm. might turn up in a month or a year. Yeah. Um, you know, when it starts to rain in the desert, the desert frogs come hurtling out of the ground, make whoopee, you know, fantastic <laughs> orgy for a few days and grab a, grab a bit of a meal and then go back underground again for another five years. Yeah. It's difficult for us to get our heads around that lifestyle because we're, just sort of moving along at a constant yeah. high rate the whole time. Well, of course, it's that human-centric thing again. Of, well, isn't it just boring sitting under a rock? It's like, well, you know, it, it depends on the level of consciousness, I suppose. If your body temperature's five degrees, there's probably not much happening in your brain. Mm. You know, if you're a lizard living on top of the coldest mountaintop in Tasmania, the only time you're active is when it's nice and warm. Mm. So as far as you're concerned, you live in a tropical paradise because the only time you experience it, really, is when it's beautiful. <laughs> and the 10 months a year when it's horrible, you're sitting under a rock, you're so cold, you're not really aware of anything. Oh, it actually sounds like a dream life, hibernating for, for the bad times and yeah, engaging with the good. Absolutely. I think it's, it's probably a pretty good option. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's diff- it's difficult for me not to project personality onto this. Is that something that you have been able to push out of the way in your profession? Oh, I think it's difficult not to anthropomorphize. I think one of the issues is that there is very real personality. There's an enormous amount of recent research showing different personality types within a population of snakes or lizards. Right. You know, just like dogs and cats have got personality. Yeah. If you've got pet black snakes, you know, you'll have the extrovert and the introvert and, <laughs> yeah, and right. all this sort of stuff. And if you radio track a bunch of black snakes, there'll be one that is happy to crawl along between your feet as you walk along and there's another one that goes yipe when it sees you 50 metres away and goes and hides in a hole yeah. for a week. So there is a lot of things that map onto the dimensions of human experience, and mm. I think we just have to be judicious as to how we use it. I, think, yeah. I don't think we should utterly avoid anthropomorphism because I think it can give us insights about what may be going on based on our own experiences. But on yeah. the other hand, you know, you don't want to be start making ethical and moral judgments about yeah. you know, what the animals are doing. That's a completely human concept. Out on the scorching lava fields, the iguanas lie unprotected in the ferocious equatorial sun. They can do so because of the major innovation made by the first reptiles of all, the nature of their skin. It's not moist like a frog's, but tough, covered with scales, and most crucial of all, it's practically watertight. This skin has enabled reptiles to colonize the hottest and driest places on Earth. Is watertight, watertight skin is an invention, or invention, an innovation evolved by the reptiles? I guess one of the things that's changed since the days of this documentary is that we've become much more aware of the diversity of things. So there's a bunch of frogs, for example, that produce waterproof coverings. And a, a green tree frog can sit out in the sun um, right. and, and it'll be just as hot as the lizard next door. It won't, won't lose any water. Equally, there are reptiles that live in the moist forests that have water loss rates as high as a frog. So... The generalisations are probably still okay, but we know of a hell of a lot more exceptions to the rule these days. Yeah, right. I think th- for, for a layman like me, you know, I think it's easier to put it into this narrative of, you know, amphibians were the first ones out of the water and then reptiles invented watertight skin and eggs, and but that's not, it's not necessarily such a straight line or so neat, right? Yeah, no, evolution's incredibly messy. So <laughs> whenever a local population gets an advantage from some new trick, it may well head off on that line. Mm. And so you'll get creatures doing things you wouldn't expect that kind of an animal to do mm-hmm. um, just because it's paid off in evolutionary time. Is, is there an evolutionary, like a clear evolutionary path from amphibian to reptile? It's all pretty damn messy yeah. and it's really messy when you get to reptiles and mammals. Mm-hmm. The true blue evolutionary taxonomist would tell you there's no such thing as a reptile. I mean, birds are, are part of the reptile clade yeah. and so, you know, look, it, it really is a question of a a bifurcating tree that's got lots of branches. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. We, some of those branches have flourished and so there's a thing we can call an amphibian or a reptile. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's uh, we love our little pigeonholes. We love our categories. <laughs> a lot of people have said that, that humans love attaching labels to stuff and mainly it's just us trying to figure, you know, figure well, the whole picture out. It's how we make sense of things. Yeah. They're starting to think that evolution, I mean, obviously it's incredibly slow for huge changes, but this, are they, is it true that they're starting to realise that it can happen a lot quicker than... The, the, the example I heard was um, that when they domesticate foxes, they suddenly their fur becomes mottled like their dogs and their ears get floppy. And, mm, and the round faces. Yeah, yeah, and it only happens within a couple nice, of generations. Per, nice personalities, yeah. yeah. I think it's probably one of the biggest changes in our understanding of evolution is the speed that it can occur. The poster kids really are invasive species. Uh. You take a species to a different part of the world where it's got different challenges... Yeah. 
And even if only a small number of individuals got brought across, you know, in the case of cane toads, it was 101 adult toads were brought to Australia. Now, they have evolved out of sight. I mean, the, the guys on the invasion front in Western Australia are different in shape, physiology, behaviour, genetics to the guys in Queensland. You know, they really are very, very mm. different animals. And right. that's all happened in less than a human lifetime. So that under the right circumstances, it's clear that evolution can occur incredibly fast. And mm. I think the real problem for evolutionary biologists is why doesn't that happen more often? But across the board? Or? Yeah. Why is a magpie that lives around Sydney almost identical to one that lives around Perth? Mm. I mean, you'd think there were so many differences in selective forces and food and predators, climate and everything else, yeah. that local populations would become differentiated. But with a little bit of interbreeding all the way across, you can maintain the status quo. Dinosaur. There can be no question of the success of these early reptiles, for they dominated the world for 130 million years. During that time, they developed into all kinds of shapes and sizes. These were among the most impressive animals ever to tread the earth, and we know them from their bones. I would take my grandfather all the time to see dinosaurs at the museum, and he was it was the only thing that would make him regress into a seven-year-old. Just he couldn't get his head around it. He just couldn't get his head around it. Well, they've got this enduring fascination for kids, don't they, yeah. especially? I mean, yeah. oh, boy, you know, my grandkids and my kids really found something special. Well, they're monsters. Dinosaurs. Yeah. It's because they're monsters. Yeah. <laughs> do you think they're ever going to bring them back? I think the technical obstacles to do it are decreasing. I think we're still formidable. Mm. But yeah, look, given the rate that the technology is moving, you'd have to guess that there's at least a possibility that you can bring back something that looks somewhat like some of these things that are no longer uh, with us. Is it ethical? I think that's a much trickier question. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the big developments that we're going to see is, is a very real public debate about the ethics of genetic manipulation and, and, and what conditions is it okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think from the, from the extinct species perspective, especially dinosaurs, it's... I don't see any ethical way to do it because there's no place for them in the world. Yeah, I think the more difficult decisions will be things like we know that Komodo dragons evolved in Australia. They went extinct in Australia, possibly when humans arrived. They hung on on these little islands in Indonesia. And do we want to bring them back to Australia? We know that they occurred here. I suppose it's true that human intervention was the reason they disappeared. And that, that may not be, but if it was... Would we want to bring them back? It would make bushwalking in Kakadu a very different <laughs> kind of an experience. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not a decision we would make lightly. Yeah. Tasmanian devils used to be on the mainland of Australia until very recently. It was probably dingoes yeah, yeah. brought by humans that wiped them out. We could very easily release Tassie devils back on the mainland. I think we should. Yeah. But there'd be a lot of people out there, including the Tasmanian tourism authorities, that think that's a terrible idea. <laughs> Of course, it always comes down to budgetary concerns, right? That's part of the part of the equation. Yeah. We have techniques now that might well give us a new and effective way to get rid of things like cane toads and, and feral cats and foxes. Uh, whether or not the benefits justify the risks is a debate that has to have a hell of a lot of stakeholders involved with, I think. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. not a decision that the scientists should be left to make on their own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Do you have a personal philosophy on it? Either wiping out invasive species or bringing back extinct ones? I don't see any problem with investigating ways of doing these things, but I think we have to be very careful that we don't find solutions that are riskier than the current problem. Mm -hmm. So I've worked a lot with cane toads. I think we now have a pretty good idea of the damage that cane toads do. It is significant, but it's kind of a medium range ecological catastrophe. 
if you were to come up with a way to, say, wipe out cane toads from the face of the earth, wiping them out in their native range would probably create more of an ecological catastrophe yeah. than the benefit you would get from removing them from Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you've got to think globally, invasive species come from somewhere. Yeah. If by accident the technology you came up with wiped out other toads as well, mm. then we would be looking at a major environmental it's not uh, just a crisis. medium-level crisis. Yeah. So, a, yeah. you know, we got to be pretty damn confident we understand what the implications and consequences of our actions will be. Yeah. And I think we have to consult very widely um, yeah. and, and make sure that we're not leaping in. weeks ago I was talking to Jody Rowley and she was telling me about the um the notion of feeding miniature cane toad sausages to native animals to get them to avoid the real thing mm-hmm. and you pioneered that right mm-hmm. when you feed a population of quolls or snakes or something these small amounts of cane toad sausage does that get passed intergenerationally the knowledge that to stay away from those toads or is that something that you need to do for each new generation It certainly doesn't sort of get embedded in the genes just because mum has learnt how to do it. But in the case of quolls, the kids hang around with mum for a long time. And the observation is that our trained quolls not only survive, but they bred and their kids survived. So their kids were obviously averse to cane toads. We don't know whether they watched mum or whether mum actually taught them. The alternative is that once toads get to an area and they start breeding, there's lots and lots of baby toads around that your offspring can eat and that'll make them sick and not kill them, and they'll learn for themselves. So really the whole plan with taste aversion is that you get that first generation of predators that would have been killed when the giant toads at the invasion front came through. You teach them to leave those toads alone. With a bit of luck, those predators are still around and producing kids by the time the cane toads themselves start breeding, and so there's baby toads around, and the babies learn for themselves. So it ought to only take one bout of education to set the population on a new trajectory. Uh That must feel great, right? actually having attacked the problem rather than just throwing your hands up in hopelessness? Yeah, look, it's one of these things that lots of invasive species, we, we just can't get rid of them. I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty damn good at what they yeah. do. So people are thinking about teaching native mammals about foxes and cats and things like that. Mm. I guess we just sort of took a slightly different way of approaching how we can help the native species survive. What's that? Yeah, amazing stuff. You've got to admire it. It's uh, way ahead of its time. And so from your perspective, has anything, has, is there any major differences in the science or have our understand, has our understanding changed dramatically in any way since this? Well, looking back at it, I mean, I really am impressed at the fact that he portrays reptiles as, you know, they were traditionally seen as very simple primitive creatures that were interesting only because they were our ancestors. Mm. He's actually portraying them as flexible living creatures overcoming challenges. Yeah. And I think that's very impressive given the time that this was made. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, look, we, we have a lot more examples of sophistication, a lot more examples of diversity. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think one of the really interesting fields over the last several years has been the way in which sex is determined. I mean, there are, there are a whole bunch of lizards in which there are only females and they give virgin birth and all this sort of stuff, and that's been known for a while. We now know that if you keep a snake or a lizard in captivity for long enough without a boyfriend, she may just decide to go ahead and have kids anyway. And so really? this turns out to be really common, Komodo dragons and wow. you know, various kinds of snakes. But um, 
in terms of you know what de- what, what what determines whether a, a lizard is a boy or a girl, one of the species we worked on up in the uh, the high country near Canberra, um, it's partly due to sex chromosomes. They've got XXXY, just like we do. Boys yeah. are XY, but if you incubate the egg cold, some of the girls will actually develop as boys. So oh. you've got XX boys, but it's also influenced by the amount of yolk that the mum puts into the egg. And if you suck a bit of yolk out with a syringe or put a bit of extra, you can change it again. So wow. w- whether that little lizard in front of you is a boy or a girl is a function of its of its chromosomes, uh, of the temperature at which it developed, and of what mum put into the egg at the beginning. And so it is just so sophisticated compared to yeah. to our system. And, and all of those things pay off. There are reasons for why they are advantageous. Yeah. And so in, in many ways, I guess I've come to see mammals as the poor, rather boring, simplistic <laughs> um, descendants of a far more interesting and diverse and flexible uh, radiation of, of organisms. <laughs> uh, thank you, Rick. That was so great. Thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you once again to the brilliant Professor Richard Shine for sitting down and having a great chat with me. And as always, massive credit to my co-editor, co-producer and sound wizard, Sean Allen. He is the man behind the curtain on this project and I could not do it without him. If you are enjoying this podcast, please do what you can to get it out into as many ears as possible. It's a huge help to us if you can leave a five-star rating, leave a review and share it on Twitter. Next week sees the returning champion, Dr. Lindsay Gray. We'll be talking all things birds as we sit down together to watch episode eight of Sir David Attenborough's Life on Earth. Thank you.